How you doing? Everyone doing good? It's a good day. Really good day. Hey, listen, uh, human beings are absolutely uh, obsessed, I think, with stories. We love stories. Uh, people love to tell each other stories. Uh, people go to the movies because they want to watch a good story. People, uh, people go to the theatres, they want to watch stories. And part of that, I think, is because life generally unfolds more like a drama than it does like a maths lesson. There's some people who are not that good at maths who are just going, thank the Lord for that. Life is a drama. Each day has a beginning and an end. We have all sorts of characters that show up in our days and uh, all sorts of settings. Sometimes life unfolds a bit like a tragedy, doesn't it? And sometimes it unfolds like a comedy. But mostly it's probably a bit of a soap opera. So you want to know stories. You know, if you came home and uh, you live in a house with other people and you found that your car had just been trashed, had been smashed up, what's the first thing you want to know? Well, you want to know the story. How did that happen? Especially if you're a parent. (laughs) And let's think about jokes. I mean, even if you look at jokes, what are jokes? Jokes are just a story with a funny ending. You see, if you walk in halfway through a joke and you just hear the punchline, it doesn't mean anything unless you've got the story. We love stories. Absolutely love stories. So what I actually wanted to start off with today is I just wanted to draw a brief uh, summary of what our current cultural story is. It, it would be true to say that most cultures have a story that describe things for them. Let me tell you what our current cultural story is, the most uh, pervasive one. This is the Eye of God Nebula in space. The current cultural story goes something like this. The earth and the universe came into being totally uncaused. Okay? Totally uncaused. No one made it. Nothing made it. It just happened. Just showed up. It would be like me walking up the aisle here and all of a sudden there's a chair in front of me for no reason at all. And secondly, and some of you think you'd be having lunch with someone like this, uh, the current cultural story is that we're, uh, we're actually made in the image of monkeys. There's a guy who wrote a book a little while ago who, uh, and he titled the book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't think God exists. And his point through the book basically was that uh, you need a lot and a lot of belief and faith to actually go with the things that uh, atheists believe, evolution being one of them. We know from experience that things don't just pop into existence without any cause. I'm a manual arts teacher or was a manual arts teacher at the school here, and a nice piece of furniture just doesn't spontaneously exist. It, it comes into being because I've caused it to come into being and I've designed it. Uh, we know that every single thing in our whole universe comes into being or is in place because of some kind of cause. It's a strange thing that uh, scientists and evolutionists and atheists would want us to think that everything came into being without any cause, absolutely any cause at all. And then they tell us we're made in the image of a monkey. And some of you will be going, yeah, that's Uncle John, all right? It's like, don't you meet those people? You just kind of go, seriously, I didn't believe in evolution, but you're just playing for their team at the moment, all right? What does it deal with that? You're acting like an animal, you're weird, all right? The next thing about our uh, cultural narrative is this. There's actually no purpose in life. There's no ultimate objective for any of you. This is our current cultural narrative. I was talking with one of my neighbours down the street uh, when we had our Christmas party and uh, he was just amazed with uh, the generosity of people in our street to have our Christmas party. And I I just said to him, I said, here's the thing. I said, 
if you're an evolutionist, if you believe in evolution and you think God doesn't exist, give me your rational basis for why you would be generous. Evolution says it's survival of the fittest. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to look after your own tribe. How do you get overflowing generosity out of that belief system? And the answer is you don't. All right? It's an, an, I knew I was going to get this wrong. It's an anomaly. That's what it is. It's a, it's a weird occurrence when you have generosity out there. The truth is lots of people are generous. I'm not saying people are evolutionists, hoard everything and never share anything. Lots of people are generous who are evolutionists, but it just doesn't fit with the basic belief system underneath. That's really what I'm saying. The next thing that uh, our cultural narrative says is that there actually isn't any ultimate evil or good. There isn't. Richard Dawkins says this. He's probably one of the main proponents of evolution. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. Richard Dawkins is saying that when someone crashes into your car, when someone breaks into your house and steals your microwave or your TV or your computer... It's just bad luck. It's actually not bad. It's not good. It's not bad. It's neither. It's just bad luck. You've been in the wrong place at the wrong time with another guy who had the right chemicals buzzing through his brains and decided he was going to steal some of your stuff. All right? Now, we all know instinctively underneath that some things are just good and some things are just ultimately evil. We can look at someone who gives their life for someone else. I mean, we see these stories in the movies all the time. I mean, the ultimate gift in a movie, the ultimate act of love in a movie is self-sacrifice, isn't it? And we know instinctively that self-sacrifice, especially for some, if it's for someone you don't even know, is a good thing. That's not chemicals. We know that that's not chemicals. I want to show you a brief clip from uh, a guy called Philip Adams. Some of you may know him. He's a radio jock. I probably shouldn't call him that because he's pretty old. I don't know whether you call an old radio guy a radio jock. But anyway, he's a radio announcer for the ABC and he's probably Australia's best known atheist. And what he does here in this little clip is he actually talks about uh, his, the process that he went through to becoming an atheist and how it felt existentially when he became an atheist. <laughs> The great problem in discovering that you don't believe in God is you feel an intense and all-pervasive sense of loneliness. And when I found that I didn't need to believe in him, I still felt a great sense of desolation and a high degree of fear. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, you'd be welcome to get the, the rest of the clip off me at some point in time, but it's a really fascinating insight into this man who doesn't believe in God but actually comes and smashes into the existential realities of not believing in God. And this overwhelming sense of isolation and loneliness came over him. This is something of what uh, we've seen in the last six months or so with the death of Amy Winehouse. Lily Allen tweeted after uh, Amy Winehouse's death, she said, it's just beyond sad there's, and there's, there's nothing else to say. She was such a lost soul May she rest in peace. 
the sad, sad thing about a non-God evolutionary system is, you know what, all we've got left to help people is fictional superheroes. Have you noticed that over the last 10 years or so, there's just been an incredible abundance of superhero movies on TV. I started watching Hellboy for the first time the other night. This is what we do. We make fictional superheroes because inside, deep down inside, all of us, there's a sense that life actually doesn't work and there's something that's wrong and there's a sense deep down inside that we need someone to come rescue me. The stats about depression are that one in five people over their life will experience depression. If we take a snapshot of the use of antidepressants between 1992 and 2002, there was a 352% increase in the use of antidepressants in Australia. It may be true to say that our story, our current cultural story of materialism and evolution has actually left us one of the most lonely and isolated cultures But there's a problem with our cultural story and I've alluded to this a little bit already. It just doesn't seem to fit, does it? You see, what we're left with is we're left with a depressing narrative. I'm a qualified counsellor. I finished my counselling qualification in uh, August this year and I was was officially accredited in October. And one of the things that counsellors say all the time is they say, you have to make your own meaning in life. You have to work it out. There's a whole branch of therapy called narrative therapy and what narrative therapy is about is you sit down and you tell your story and then the therapist helps you to fix up the dodgy bits in your story that hurt. Help you to see it a different way. Help yourself because no one's coming for you. No one's coming for you. You see, we actually have many desires that are unfulfilled. You remember the uh, Tim Tam ads where the uh, genie shows up? Do you remember that? And they say, what do you want? And old mate wants, what does he want? A trade Tim Tams that never runs out. See, isn't life like that? Life is like that. There's a sense, even in the really good times, like they're just not going to last. And I don't mean to be a pessimist. Let's not have any pessimists on Christmas Day. But there is a sense like that. Thank you, champ. You've done really well. But do you ever wonder, why does everything always get spoiled? Why, why do nice cars rust? Why is it that when you have the most incredible time in your marriage and you're very, very close to your spouse that that just doesn't last? We have a lot of desires that are unfulfilled. And you know, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, there is another narrative and I would suggest to you today that it's a far more supreme narrative than our current cultural narrative. You know, for for quite a number of years, I had some deep, deep questions about the existence of God and and trusting the Bible. A, A wise old man came up to me one day and he said, Peter, he said, your problem actually isn't that you don't have enough evidence. Your problem is the suppression of evidence. That's what it is. And I think he was right. I think he was a wise, wise man. I'd spent a lot of my time in books and listening to very intelligent people and listening to people debate between atheists and Christians. The issue actually didn't come down to evidence. It came down to the suppression of it. And we can see this in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Isn't this, uh, I don't know if you've seen the news reports recently about the God particle. Have you seen those ones? The dudes over in Europe there somewhere, they've got this long tube that runs in a circle and they're trying to collide things into each other to work out what the God particle is. What is a particle that's smaller than we even know about at the moment? You see, God is incredibly complex. These things don't have to come about by randomness. In fact, they wouldn't come about by random now by randomness. They come about because someone designs it. You see, I wonder whether there's going to be a God particle of the God particle. All right? When we find the smallest one, I can bet you, well, you probably bet your bottom dollar that there's going to be a smaller one. And then they're going to have to build a bigger tube and make it go faster and collide it in there and get more physicists together, get their hands up and singing rah-rah because it's a really, really good, exciting thing. I just think it's classic. You watch the nature docs. I said this at the project a few weeks ago. I watched quite a few episodes of The Frozen Planet by David Attenborough. And he can't help himself. He talks all the time about things that have been designed. But he says the thing that designed it is this random, brainless, unintelligent, random collision of atoms. Well, that's weird. I actually think that takes a lot of faith to believe that. I actually think for some of these guys it would be far, far easier just to say, I think God did it. I mean, it gets so weird that Richard Dawkins has come out and he suggested, and you can get this on YouTube. I mean, you probably won't even believe me, but I'll tell you anyway. He said on YouTube, he said, probably the evolutionary process was started by evolved aliens that came from outer space and seeded evolution on this planet. Right? Now, when we start getting the aliens that have been evolved, I'm, just, I'm happy to just go with the three-letter word God. Let's just do that. Like, we're actually getting to the point where it's just a little bit easier to have a smart, really awesome guy who actually puts some things together. Well, here's the truth. God has made everything. See, uh, we had a time at our dinner table a little while ago where I said to the boys, I said, if Romans 1 verse 18 to 20 is true, I should be able to pick up a leaf and work some things out about God. And you can. God's beautiful. God's intricate. God's huge. God's very smart. See, John Calvin said this, Wherever you turn your eyes, there is no portion of the world, however minute, that does not exhibit at least some sparks of beauty. While it is impossible to contemplate the vast and beautiful fabric as it extends around without being overwhelmed by the immense weight of glory. You see, evolutionists, as I said before, they can't help talking about design and highlighting the magnificence of our creation. That's why you have so many nature shows. The, sec- the second thing about the uh, biblical narrative is not only we, was everything created by God, but you weren't created in the image of a monkey. You were created in his image. Woohoo! That's good. Because that means you're not an animal. Alright? That means you are really, really significant. It doesn't actually matter who it is in this room, it doesn't matter who it is on the whole planet, whether they love Jesus or not, they're actually, everyone's made in his image and we were made to reflect him. We were made to worship, to communicate, to love, sacrifice, be creative. I mean, when have you ever seen like an aardvark make an AK-47? All right? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Don't visit that country. Like you rock up and there's an aardvark with an AK-47, leave. All right? But they don't do that. They're not creative like that. 
They don't bow down and worship God, although the Psalms say that in their living they do. They don't do it in the same way humans do. You don't see echidnas sacrificing their lives for bears, do you? I love that bear, you know. I give myself, you don't see it. It doesn't happen, all right? And you don't see kangaroos sitting in the corner of a paddock just bummed out about something they got wrong, all right? You just don't see it. It's uniquely human. But let me tell you something else that is uniquely human. Another thing that's uniquely human is the fact that it's been corrupted by us. You see, there is good and evil. But what we actually see is evil is a corruption of good things. That's what evil is. Evil's not this plasticine blob that exists somewhere out in the atmosphere somewhere. And if all we need to do is just get a, a good nick, right, and a laser-guided kind of deal going on, we can just blow that thing up. It's not. Evil is actually the corruption of good. You see, if someone commits adultery, what's that? That's a corruption of a marriage, and the marriage is a very good thing. What's lying? Lying is the corruption of honesty and the corruption of truth. But you see, right at the beginning, right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the main problem was that the first two characters in the story, the first two actors in the story, decided they didn't want to play a part in God's story. They wanted to create their own story. And this is the problem that we've had ever since then, is that humans don't want to be part of God's story. We want to create our own story. You see, what that's resulted in is that means that every single human being at some level, their creation in the image of God has been compromised. You see, back in uh, New Testament days, back around the turn of the uh, millennium, zero, the, the start of the calendar, the way that mirrors used to work is mirrors are actually made out of bronze. So you can imagine what would happen to a bronze mirror over time is it would get tarnished and it would get more and more difficult to make your image out in it. You see, and this is us. See, there's a little bit of a likeness of God in us. We're we're like a really tarnished bronze mirror and we're meant to be reflecting God really well and there's a bit of a likeness in the bronze mirror but we can't quite make it out. It's a little bit deceptive. It's a little bit unclear. And this is probably probably the greatest greatest thing that we got wrong is that we decided to make ourselves the centre of the story. You see, God started things and he was always going to be the hero because he is, not because he's conceited. We're conceited because we're not the hero and we try to make ourselves the hero. God was always going to be the hero of the story. But we said, no, I don't want you to be the hero. I'm going to put myself in the centre. I'm going to write my own story and I'm going to be the hero in my story. When we do that, we say things like this. God, please get me out of this and I'll follow you for the rest of my life. Come along when I want you to and be an extra in my movie. Be an extra. We say things like, why did you let this happen to me? We get angry at him when he doesn't do what he should because our extra is not acting properly. He's got to play by our rules. We say things like, you are so unfair and unjust because he's not playing by the rules that we've set up in our story. And we find ourselves in our story from time to time being needy and we know it. And by default, we medicate ourselves rather than turning to him because we're so enamoured and so centred on our own story. So what does God do with a broken mirror, a corrupted image? What does he do with isolated, lost and estranged children? 
Does he leave them to their own devices? Well, not this God. Virtually every other God in the world says, you need to pull your socks up. You need to get it right. If you get rid of your desires, you can reach nirvana. If you blow yourself up, maybe you might get into heaven. Not this God. You see, God had countless opportunities through history to desert all of us. You see, we were his enemies. That's why I'm convinced if the Jews didn't kill Jesus and he came now, maybe one of us would have. I've got it within me. Because that's the very nature of pride. The very nature of pride is that we want to be the centre and when someone else comes along to threaten that, we've got to get them out of the way. But God had lots of opportunities to desert us. Lots of times when we're only concerned about our own story. Lots of opportunities to discard us, to leave us on our own, to let us write our own story, to let us destroy each other. You see, we've got laws in this country because if we let people do whatever they want, if that's our definition of freedom, people will destroy one another. God had lots of opportunities to leave us isolated and lonely without any rescuer. He could have done any number of times a Bette Midler. Could he not? What's Bette Midler is probably, it's probably the only song I know of Bette Midler. God is watching us from a distance. Anyone heard that? I reckon it's a story about someone needs, needs to get bifocals. Listen to this. From a distance there is harmony and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace. It's the voice of every man. From a distance we all have enough and no one is in need. And there are no guns, no bombs and no disease. No hungry mouths to feed. From a distance we are instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. I mean, I think it's a really strange thing at Christmas time that a lot of people go around and saying, say peace to you. Now, how's that going to happen? How does peace happen? Because people are at war with one another on so many levels, literally in different places of the world, but often in families and in, and in community groups. Marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace, they are the songs of every man. And then the bridge, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. Well, there's a lot of hope in that, isn't it? I mean, it did said for all money, it may be funny to you, but I think it's just a story about someone who needs some bifocals because from a distance everything looks sweet, but up close it's ugly. And sometimes I'd, I was thinking about this, I thought, I wonder what... I bet didn't write, write the song, but I wonder what the lady who wrote the song really meant. She's saying everything looks good from a, a distance, but not so good up close. Well, the beauty of God is that God does see things from a distance and he sees what he could do with something and he sees the potential in it, but he also sees the ugliness up close. So what does God do? You know what? In the midst of bitter conflict between he and us, he keeps moving toward us. You know that? You know that's true for everyone here today. It doesn't matter whether you love Jesus or not. Do you know that God's moving toward you? Because the very nature of uh, conflict between two people is people get isolated from one another. And the conflict only ever gets resolved when one person moves toward the other person with grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's how it works. And who knows, well, those who are Christians who follow Jesus for a while, who knows that you still have conflict with God? You have issues with him, right? And you do stuff that he told you not to do and it causes a bit of a mess between you. And who knows 
those who have followed Christ for a while and love Jesus, who knows that he actually keeps pursuing you and he keeps coming for you. And this is not just true for those that love Jesus. This is true for everyone. If anyone's here who doesn't love Jesus, I'm telling you, he is moving toward you in forgiveness and grace and mercy. You see, the whole way through biblical history, you can see that God keeps moving toward his people, even when his people are being absolutely ridiculous. Romans 5 verse 10 says that God and us were enemies. If while we were still enemies, Christ, sorry, it says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The whole way throughout history, God has never stopped calling his estranged children back to himself, back to his story. And you know, God gave uh, signs and indicators and he revealed a little bit of his story 800 years before Jesus came. We have in Isaiah 7 verse 14, a book that we know for certain was written well before Jesus came on the scene. It says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew in chapter 1 adds, which means God is with us. You see, Christmas is about God moving toward you. That's what it's about. It's not God moving away from you. It's not God washing his hands of you. It's God moving toward you. It's God moving toward everyone. And in Isaiah 9 verse 6, Isaiah prophesies again that a child is going to be born. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Do you notice that? The son eternally existed. So the son doesn't get born and he doesn't start. The son gets given, but the child gets born. This is Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Don't we need more counsellors? Don't we need a good counsellor? I mean, in some ways, my uh, move to uh, getting counselling, a counselling qualification, it's the right business. Everyone's saying counselling and emotional help and therapy and that kind of thing, that's just the industry that's just going to go off in the next few years because people are having troubles. Don't we need a wonderful counsellor? Mighty God is another one we desperately need. Everlasting Father. I mean, even in the really good families, people uh, have been hurt by their dads. No dad's perfect. I'm not. My boys need an everlasting father who's going to get it right all the time. And the Prince of Peace. Isn't this just what we need in our high-tech arms length society? God with us. God close to us, God extending himself toward us. In our society who lives for themselves, people actually desperately need to be part of a story that's way bigger than them. You see, when people put themselves in the centre of their story, it becomes a cancer to them. In 4 BC, there was a really strange competition This is absolutely true. I uh, did some studies with uh, an ancient history professor from Cambridge uh, and uh, there's this really strange competition that actually takes place in 4 BC. And just in case you uh, don't know, they probably got someone who was gifted at the arts to work out the calendar because they actually think Jesus was born around about 4 BC. All right? Not dissing the arts. Okay? But they just, yeah, diff like the back, he's going, I can't believe you said that on Christmas Day to me. He's in the arts. But at 4 BC, they think roughly that's when Jesus was born. And in 4 BC, Caesar Augustus set up this competition. 
And I can give you the full transcript. They found some of these inscriptions around the place. They've translated them. I'm not even making this up. This is what the competition was. The competition was to see who could honour Caesar Augustus on his birthday the most. Now, back in uh, Roman times, the, uh, the Caesars would start off human and if they were good enough and if they were tricky enough, they'd become a god. They'd become divine. None of this has got anything to do with the Bible, right? The Bible doesn't talk about this competition. This is just what we know from ancient history. Listen to this. This is from the inscription. For our ancestors, sorry, from our ancestors we have received the goodwill of the gods and more pleasant and more beneficial is the most divine Caesar Augustus's birthday, which we might justly consider equal to the beginning of all things. Isn't that interesting? They're saying that all things actually begin in Caesar Augustus. That this event, his birthday, has been for himself the beginning of life and of living. He's the source of life. Isn't that interesting? I'll read you this. Since uh, providence has divinely disposed our lives, having employed zeal and ardour, has arranged the most perfect culmination for life by producing Augustus, whom, for the benefit of mankind, she has filled with virtue, and she has sent him as a saviour for us and our descendants, a saviour who has brought war to an end and set all things in order. Isn't this interesting? So you've got this guy, Caesar Augustus in 4 BC, who's having this big competition G up to see who can honour him the best. I'll read you a little bit more. And since the birthday of the God Mark for the world, the beginning of good news through his coming... The Greeks shall use the Greek day along with the Roman. Rah, rah, rah. I won't even explain the rest of that. Basically, what they wanted to do is restart the calendar on Caesar Augustus's birthday. Don't you think this is weird? In the same year that Jesus is born, a man who was born a man and became a god wanted to restart the calendar, said he was the beginning of all things, gave purpose and life to everyone and there's this big competition as to who can honour him the best. On the other side, you've got this guy born that almost no one knows about. He was always God. He got born a man and he grew up as a man. So what you've actually got is you've got these two scenarios where you've got two competing stories. Do you see this? This is kind of like what I've been saying the whole way through. There's two stories. Caesar Augustus doesn't want God's story. He wants his own story. He wants to be the hero in his own story. So what's going to happen? Whose story is going to be supreme? One was born in a palace and one was born in a stable. One man was born a human and now claimed to be divine and another one who was always divine became a human. Both claimed to be the saviour of the world. Both claimed to restart the calendar. Both claimed to bring meaning and significance to people's lives. One man used people to elevate himself whilst the other one was treated like dirt by people so that he could elevate them. Who will be the most influential? Well, I don't think you can deny it. History bears witness to the fact that the person that has been most influential from 4 BC was not Caesar Augustus. And this is not even my opinion. I think if you look across the world and you look across history, Jesus has had a far bigger impact on the world than Caesar Augustus ever has. In fact, some of you may not have even heard of Caesar Augustus, but you've probably heard of Jesus. 
Listen to C.S. Lewis and then we'll close. What God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself. He was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular colour, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. This is what God did. I'll read you a couple of scriptures and I'll pray and we're done. John chapter 1 verse 12 to 13 says this, But to all who did receive him, this Jesus, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see this? God the Father gave up one of his children so he could get more children. That's amazing. John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So you see, God's plan has always been that his story would be a self-sacrificing rescue story. A divine romance, you might say. It's only human pride that turns it into a tragedy. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for moving toward us. Father, thanks for coming up with the plan to move toward us. Thanks that you instinctively, Father, move toward us all the time. We need that. Because they're really good at running and separation and independence, isolation and hiding. Thank you for moving toward us and thank you that it's your love and your mercy and your grace that breaks our hearts and makes us new. God, I pray that uh, 2012 would be a year, a testimonial year where all of us in this room can say, God moved toward me this year. He reached out to me. He was Emmanuel. He was God with me. And God, I pray that today that there'd be a sense for all of us that Christmas Day 2011, our testimony at the end of the day was, surely God was with me today.